Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hey, folks, today is Friday, February 21st, 2020. We are broadcasting live from Los Angeles, site of the 51st annual NAACP Image Awards. Tonight is the pre-show. And, of course, we're here on the red carpet. We'll be broadcasting that live uh, in about two hours. But first, let's talk about today's show. Focus now is on the voting in Nevada, but also next week, the primary in South Carolina. We'll talk about what that means for all the top candidates and Mike Bloomberg makes a big announcement today regarding non-disclosure agreements against women who have raised issues of sexual harassment or sexual language against him. We'll tell you all about that also uh, on uh, today's show. Uh, jurors in the Harvey Weinstein case have reached a decision on a couple of the counts, but they're deadlocked on the two most serious charges against uh, the Hollywood producer for sexual assault. We'll give you those details uh, as well. 
What is happening in Chicago? Are the critics of Kim Fox, are they targeting her, trying to get her defeated the ballot box? And are we seeing this happen with black female prosecutors across the country? We'll talk to a guest who says that's absolutely the case. Also, TSU, they have reached Texas, Texas Southern University, the nation's second largest HBCU. They reached a settlement with their president, Dr. Austin Lane, nearly a million dollar buyout. Why in the hell are they buying this contract out? We'll talk to one of the TSU Board of Regents about this decision. Also, uh, on today's show, 55 years ago today, Malcolm X uh, was assassinated. We'll talk about that. And a black history fact with Congressman Jim Clyburn of South Carolina. Folks, we got a jam-packed show. It's time to bring the funk. I'm Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the find. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics. With entertainment just for kicks, he's rolling. All right, folks, Roland Martin here, broadcasting live from Los Angeles, site of the 51st annual NAACP Image Awards. We'll get to that in just a moment. But first, a huge day of news in politics. Tomorrow, voters in Nevada will go to the polls, uh, actually for their caucus, uh, to choose uh, their pick for the Democratic nomination. Uh, based upon polling uh, data, Senator Bernie Sanders is leading. Vice President Joe Biden's in second. Uh, and then, of course, it's a race for third between Senator Elizabeth Warren, Mayor uh, Pete Buttigieg, as well as Amy Klobuchar, Tom Steyer, and the others. Now, former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg, he is not on the ballot, but he is still campaigning in Nevada, but also planning for a heavy rotation in South Carolina, even though he is not on the South Carolina ballot as well. That's also not the biggest news today. Uh, yesterday, uh, Donald Trump made it clear he is not going to finalize his choice for director of national intelligence because he was angry at the DNI of, uh, staff uh, made a presentation to uh, the House Intelligence Committee saying that Russia was trying to get involved in the 2020 election. Now we have news today that uh, Senator Bernie Sanders has been notified uh, by intelligence officials uh, that Russia is trying to impact the election to help Bernie Sanders because they want him to be opposed to oppose Donald Trump in November. Here's a statement that Bernie Sanders released, quote, unlike Donald Trump, I do not consider Vladimir Putin a good friend. He is an autocratic thug who has attempted to destroy democracy and cr crush dissent in Russia. Let's be clear. The Russians want to undermine American democracy by dividing us up. And unlike the current president, I stand firmly against their efforts and any other foreign power that wants to interfere in our election. I don't care, frankly, who Putin wants to be president. My message to Putin is clear. Stay out of American elections. And as president, I will make sure that you do. In 2016, Russia used Internet propaganda to sow division in our country, and my understanding is that they are doing it again in 2020. Some of the ugly stuff on the Internet attributed to our campaign may, may well not be coming from real supporters. In my view, 
because of our extraordinary grassroots organization, because of our grassroots fundraising, and because of our agenda that speaks to the needs of working class people, we are the strongest campaign to defeat Donald Trump, and that is exactly what we will try to do. Joining us right now is Cliff Albright. He is, of course, co-founder of Black Voters Matter. Uh, Cliff, how you doing? Well, how you doing? Uh, first off, I got to get your reaction to to that statement. The fact that the Russians uh, they they are trying to impact 2020 again. Donald Trump refuses to acknowledge they were trying to impact or did impact 2016. But the fact that they that that Russia is trying to back Bernie Sanders to go up against Trump in 2020, does that mean that they believe that Trump has a better shot at beating the Democrats if Bernie Sanders is the nominee? Yeah, you know, I think it could mean a bunch of things, right? I think uh, I think definitely one possibility is that they, they believe that. They believe that he has a better chance of beating Bernie. They might even know that they've got some some information. We know that there's there's been rumors of all types of opposition research on Bernie that's never really been fully vetted. You know, one, because he's never been in the general for the presidential. He was in a primary. And it's never really been unleashed in the primaries because nobody wants to really attack and alienate his voters. So that's one theory. Another theory is that they want to support him at least to, to wind up getting the most delegates. Um, so they create this situation, which you saw that was really addressed during the last debate, right? This question of what happens if Bernie goes and has the most delegates, but then there's a, a type of brokered convention, right? And so what they may be wanting to do is to create that kind of situation where it's a brokered convention because they know that in such a scenario, it's gonna, it's gonna, you know, tear apart the Democratic Party. A lot of Bernie's base will go away. They'll stay at home. They won't come out. And that way, um, Trump gets to win. So whether they want him to be the candidate, or whether they want him to just be the the Democrat with the with the most delegates going into the convention, either way, it's not a good sign that they're doing the same thing that we know that they did four years ago, which is playing around and putting out misinformation. And a lot of that misinformation is targeted towards um, progressive voters and even towards black voters, Roland. We know that they targeted black voters with all kinds of disinformation, um, especially going after younger black voters, right? And so at the end of the day, there ain't nothing good going to come out of this, especially when you got a president or a man in the White House, right, um, who's not really trying to do anything and, in fact, is actively working against having any kind of real election protection. Let's talk about, uh, of course, uh, the the importance of black voters. Obviously, uh, South Carolina is really going to be the first state where black voters are going to have their say. But even though th that's the case, the debate the other night in Nevada, you really had Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, really pressing the issue on environmental justice, raising yeah. the issue about uh, black women uh, in terms of uh, the issues they have uh, when it comes to having children. Uh, a number, a number of different issues. She really went after Mike Bloomberg on stopping the frisk. Uh, and so what was your assessment of what you heard the other night and who really impressed you when it came to speaking to the issues that resonate among African-Americans? Yeah, well, she, yeah, she, uh, I guess you could say she stopped and frisked Bloomberg on stopping frisk as well as stopping and frisking him <laughs> on, uh, on his, um, his history of, of sexual harassment, which by the way, the other piece of the story is what the other breaking news today that now he's coming out and saying that he's going to actually release some women from those NDAs and why is he doing this? Because yeah, yeah, three women. Yeah, he, right. Yeah, so right. He, so what he announced was is that that, that th he said that, that that Bloomberg LP went back 
and there were three women who made allegations against him uh, right. for comments that he made that signed NDAs. And if those three women, so here's the deal. He announced if those three women request right. to be released, they right. were granted, as opposed right. to what Elizabeth Warren said, which was right. simply grant the release. Exactly, exactly. And so to, to even for him to feel that pressure is because of the fact that, as you pointed out, and many people have pointed out that she eviscerated him on national national television. So to your question, like, who's been most um, impressive on issues of black issues? Clearly, it was Elizabeth Warren, and that's not a new thing. Like, arguably, throughout this entire cycle, she's been the candidate next to Julian Castro, maybe, who has been the most consistent on dealing with these issues of racial justice and racial equity, right? That, that she speaks to the issues. Yeah, they're all talking about health care, um, but she talks about it in a way where it's not just an overall health care issue, that she understands the unique racial aspects of that issue. Yeah, they're all talking about climate change and the environment, but as you point out, she speaks about it in a way that consistently shows an understanding of the way um, race is embedded in that and, and the way that race shows up in these issues of power. And so that's been a consistent thing throughout the debate. So clearly, I think she was the most impressive on, on that issues and really on a series of, of other issues in that debate. So obviously, uh, everybody, after Saturday, it's going to be all about South Carolina. There's a debate Tuesday night in Charleston, South Carolina. We'll be there as well. What do you, the CBS is going to be, of course, uh, they're going to be uh, moderating. It's going to be simulcast on BET, even though BET is not going to have anybody from their network as one of the moderators. What do you want to see addressed at that debate on Tuesday? Yeah, I think I want to see all these issues addressed that we were just talking about, right? These issues that we know are concerned to folks in South Carolina and black communities all around this country. There's a whole range of issues. We're doing an eight-day bus tour next week. We're going to be going to communities talking about issues of environmental justice, right? Talking about issues of policing. Um, talking about voter suppression issues that really have not gotten enough attention in any of these debates. I think the one debate where it came up, it either comes up just uh, as happenstance because one of the candidates happened to mention it, and in one debate where it was a question, it was like literally like the, the next to last question or the last question of the debate. We've got to talk about voter suppression and take this more seriously to get, or else none of this stuff that we're doing and talk about, none of our mobilization efforts, um, we could get every voter to turn out, but if we're not serious about voter suppression, then, you know, all this is for naught. And so we definitely want to hear about those voter suppression issues. Um, you know, we want to hear about our issues and the way that our issue shows up in these general issues that they're even, even you know, we talk about health care. We know about the issues of um, um, black women's health and maternal, black women's maternal morbidity and mortality. Like, we need to talk about these issues that folks in South Carolina, and, and when we talk about climate in South Carolina, we're talking about the low country, right? We're talking about folks that know something about the devastation. Right of climate change, right, and floods that they have to deal with. And so these are the types of issues that we that we want to hear folks talk about. Well, let me ask you this here. What do you make of it? I've been calling her out for the past uh, couple of weeks. What do you make of the fact that Senator Amy Klobuchar is really making no effort to reach black people? Uh, she's not talking to black media. We've been trying to reach her for more than a month. Uh, and then other black journalists have reached out to me. Uh, she's she scheduled a podcast with Color of Change, then they canceled that one. I know Angela Rye's been trying to get her on a podcast, got no response whatsoever. Uh, she's polling at 0.5% among African-Americans. You got Pete Buttigieg polling at 2% among African-Americans. Uh, at the end of the day, there's no way in the world uh, you can be banking on white voters in the Democratic primary to somehow put you over the top. So your assessment of those two candidates and their lack of appeal to African-American voters thus far. 
It's absolutely, it's, it's unacceptable on a couple of levels, right? It's unacceptable that they have such little regard, right, for black voters, right? So that's one piece. But the other piece is it's absolutely unacceptable that the media and pundits have treated them, uh, especially Buttigieg, but, you know, coming out of New Hampshire, even even Amy, that they, they, they've been treating them as if they're legitimate front runners. You can't be a legitimate front runner when you're polling at 1%, 2%, 0.5% of, of black support. So, so for them to even be framed that way is an example of white privilege, right? And so, no, we can't, we can't take them seriously as a front runner. But more importantly, as black folks, we can't be guided because whether it's them or whether it's Biden or whether it's even Bloomberg, the reality is this. Um, you have a lot of black folks who right now we're thinking about our presidential preference, not off of these issues that you and I are talking about, right? Not off of the issues that folks are dealing with on a daily basis, not off of criminal justice and education and jobs and income and all of that. But we're, we're just making our decisions on our, what we think white folks are going to do. In other words, we're, we're voting right now out of fear. And part of what we're trying to do with our bus tour next week, we're calling it a campaign against fear because we can call it pragmatism, and black folks are pragmatic, but we have to call it for what it right. is. We're afraid, and it's not an irrational fear. I don't want anybody to get me wrong and think that I'm trying to shame folks, right, because of the fear. It's a real fear. There's some real stuff going on in this country that we need to be fearful of, but it, when in our history... Have we ever gotten where we wanted to get to out of responding to that fear or out of thinking about and acting on what white folks are going to vote for? We didn't take a poll of white folks before right. we did a Montgomery bus boycott and say, well, how are the white folks going to react, right? We didn't take a poll of white folks before folks crossed across that bridge in Selma. And we can't cast our votes based on how white folks are defining electability. We have to define our own electability based on our own interests. So we got to have a different and an honest discussion about this fear, not shaming folks, but just challenging us, right, to overcome that fear, no matter how rational it may be, mm -hmm. demand that we vote on our interests, because as the back of our shirts and our sweatshirts, our hoodies always say, it's about us. And if we can't vote based on it being about us, then nobody else is going to vote based on it being about us. And that's the conversation we want to have with our folks. All right, Cliff Albright, Black Voters Matter, man. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. No, we don't love you so much, Roland. Thank you. All right, I want to bring in my panel here. Joining me, Long Victoria Burke with NNPA, Dr. Neon Bay Carter, political science professor at Howard University, Pam Keith, attorney out of Florida. Out of Carter, I'll start with you. What do you make of what Cliff said about this campaign of fear? that black people are, based upon polls, choosing out of fear of what white folks are going to do. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, what Cliff was saying is exactly right. And I mean, I think it's because we've seen what white people do. We know what they're capable of. And so it's not just um, some, some fear that comes out of nowhere. It's not irrational. It's totally rational because we have eyes. We've been watching history. We've been paying attention. We know what's happening and we know what can happen when you elect a person like Donald Trump. I mean, he's reckless, he's dangerous, he's treasonous. Um, and, and so that's white people. White people did that. And so, and, and in part out of a reaction to Barack Obama and a black president. Mm. So, I think it's a very rational fear. I definitely uh, I feel his point, though, that, I mean, if black people are not thinking about their own best interests, nobody else will. But it is absolutely a rational fear that black people have. Uh, Lauren, when you look at what's happening, obviously, when you look at the issues there, I mean, the fact that Cliff says that Sarah Elizabeth Warren 
has been speaking more clearly and forcefully on these issues. Yet when you look at polling data, uh, it really has been Biden, it's been Sanders, Bloomberg, garnering the level of attention when it comes to black voters. She's even polling below Buttigieg among black voters in Virginia. Yeah. I, I, you know, I am not a big fan of the polls, particularly the national ones. Uh, and I think that what we'll find is that on Super Tuesday, all of this will be very clarifying because we have the states where there's a lot of black voters in a very decisive position, particularly in North Carolina and Virginia. Obviously, we'll see some of that in South Carolina as well. So, I mean, obviously, when we, saw, when we see what we're seeing during the debates, Elizabeth Warren clearly is, is bringing up issues of, of racial justice uh, and issues that uh, disproportionately impact African-Americans almost more than anybody standing on that stage, even when Cory Booker and Kamala Harris were in the race. Uh, you know, she's bringing up redlining, and I mean, it's pretty, pretty amazing and, and pretty impressive. Um, obviously, with, you know, her standing next to Mike Bloomberg, it was a pretty easy target for her. Uh, as a New Yorker, I think Mike Bloomberg in, in this race is shocking, quite it's frankly. Um, the fact that the city of New York had to be sued by the ACLU for 10 years, 11 years, 12 years of stop and frisk that was specifically targeted to African Americans and uh, Latinos was embarrassing. Uh, Mike Bloomberg can't explain it because he was, in, fa in fact, in favor of the policy. And um, there's no digging out of that. There's no digging out of all the audio and video that's coming out on Mike Bloomberg. There's no explaining it. He sort of had a terrible answer of many terrible answers the other night on Stop and Frisk because he believes in it. He, he, this is what he believes in. And one of the things about these presidential races that I love is that it exposes people for who they are and what they think are, is important. And, you know, I get it. His default position will be, well, I can beat Donald Trump, which, of course, there's no evidence of that whatsoever. <laughs> there's no evidence that he would be better than Donald Trump. I actually think after his terrible performance the other night, it was pretty clear that Elizabeth Warren would be a lot better as a visual going back and forth sparring with Donald Trump, you know, during a debate. So, whatever. Um, I think we'll find out in South Carolina and on Super Tuesday exactly where black voters are with this group of people. Pam, I want to talk to you about this here. What do you make of Russians wanting to boost Senator Sanders to oppose Trump? Um, what does that say about how that, what, do they think that Sanders is going to be easy for Trump to beat? I think the Russians should be careful about what they ask for because they don't understand the kind of energy that Bernie Sanders is bringing to this race. And they really don't know how young voters are going to behave. They bank on historic data that says young people can be energetic but not actually vote. And what Bernie Sanders is doing is actually getting them to vote, which is why he is a front runner. He's running on a coalition, a broad coalition, but a, lot, a coalition driven by the young. I actually agree with our colleagues, all the ones who have spoken here tonight. To me, Elizabeth Warren is the strong candidate on so many different levels, not the least of which is that for her, racial justice is not a talking point or something to talk about in a silo, but it's something that permeates every aspect of policy and all of her plans that she comes to. She's always looking at the systemic racism, at the systemic sexism that has played a part in every institution in our country. And this is why I have so much faith in her judgment and her leadership. But my opinion aside, the, the person who's really uh, garnering a whole lot of energy is Bernie Sanders. And the theory is that Donald Trump will successfully paint Bernie as a Sanders and ergo Donald will win. Well, maybe he will and maybe he won't. 
Because at the end of the day, I actually would rather convince centrists and moderates to vote for Bernie than to try to convince Bernie's supporters to vote for Michael Bloomberg. That, to me, is a much heavier lift. Well, first of all, the way I keep looking at this whole deal, Michael Bloomberg hasn't won a single delegate. <laughs> right. uh, has not been <laughs> exactly. Exactly. thus far. He has to actually... So all these people who say somehow he's the best to beat Trump, you can't run against Trump in November unless you win the nomination. That's right. And I keep saying, we'll see what happens on Super Tuesday. Do got to ask all three of you this year, what do you make of the fact that Michael Bloomberg got hit hard, very hard by Sir Elizabeth Warren mm -hmm. on the issue of non-disclosure agreements right. and comes out today saying that if the three women will request it, he will release them. And Senator Warren was so called where she, former contracts law professor, drew up a contract <laughs> saying that all Bloomberg has to do is sign it and that releases the women. But he's saying if they request to be released, right. then he'll do it. I, I got to chime in on this uh, because I am a labor and employment attorney. That is my expertise, and I've written a lot of NDAs in my time. Um, and I've also uh, challenged NDAs and, and, and brought cases against employers uh, for sexual uh, discrimination, harassment, and so forth. And, and the bottom line is there's absolutely nothing holding Michael Bloomberg back from releasing everybody under an NDA if he mm -hmm. so choose. He could do it with just one assertion. If he, he could do it in a tweet, just like Donald Trump runs his country from tweet. <laughs> he could do it in a tweet, say, all NDAs are hereby rescinded and you can say what you want. Uh, he doesn't want to do that, and there's a darn good reason he doesn't want to do that. Um, and, and quite frankly, I I'm surprised and somewhat bewildered that Michael Bloomberg's ace high-paid team didn't come up with a plan for how to deal with that before he got on that stage. Because I know for sure Elizabeth Warren is not the first person thinking about all the people that had beef with Michael Bloomberg, right? That's of lack of preparation, in addition to the many other topics in which he was not prepared, uh, that particular one seems really troubling. Everybody knew stop and frisk was going to be brought up the other night. Everybody knew that. And if you gave me $2, I would say, hey, Michael Bloomberg, there's an easy answer to this. Just say that you did it to save black people who were getting shot, because it wasn't the people on the Upper West Side that were getting shot. It was young black boys. Maybe that was your reason. He couldn't even come up with that. I don't get paid to be a political consultant. There are people who do, who got paid a lot by him to give him advice, and they let him down. Michael Bloomberg is a throwback to the 1930s and 40s New York-style racism. That's what, that's what this is, okay? The idea that he would sit and seriously argue that all the blacks are committing the crimes in New York, it's completely ridiculous. Actually, New York is at a, I think, 40-year but, 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 but one second, one second. But I'm... But, but I'm asking uh, about the NDA. Yeah, I'm let's talk about the, about the NDA. So he had what, his. What? He had his no, no. What? 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 Hold on, one second. One second. How, what role will you think this is going to play to female voters in the states moving forward? Well, the same female voters, white female voters, who voted 53 percent for Donald Trump, who has 23 allegations. Who knows? I don't know. It's hard to tell. Michael Bloomberg had a lot of uh, employees sign an NDA before they even started employment. The very fact that we're even having this discussion about Michael Bloomberg or any of the candidates is prohibitive. I mean, it should be disqualifying that we're even talking about, you know, the fact that we have to have one of the candidates releasing people from an NDA. I mean, like, that, so, so it's, and he's not given any good explanation for this. So, to me, he's a PR machine because, of course, he's a billionaire businessman and not a public servant. 
So he's not really interested in anything other than having a Friday night news, you know, dump on this issue and maybe escaping it in the next debate, which he will not escape mm -hmm. in the next debate. But he thinks, like most businessmen who run for public office, he thinks that he can PR his way out of it or he can spin his way out of it. Mm -hmm. And the problem, of course, with that is we've already got somebody in office right now who is... Uh, a big dummy, really, who kind of sort of snuck in there because Hillary Clinton's team messed up. And even though I think Michael Bloomberg is certainly smarter than Donald Trump, but then again, who isn't, there's still that problem of thinking not about public service and not about, you know, what this is from a policy standpoint or anything like that, but just sort of thinking about how can I easily get out of this problem? You know, how can I PR my way out of this problem? In fact, he was too stupid to come up with basic talking points the other night at the debate is problematic because what that tells me is... As somebody who's consulted a few politicians, you don't listen to your consultants. There had to be somebody in there in Michael Bloomberg land that said, look, this is going to come up, sir. You need to have an answer. He didn't listen to those people, and he crashed and burned. Well, and it, Got it. And it's not just Stop a couple. It, I would say it's not just a couple allegations. There are like 40. And these <laughs> right. three NDAs do nothing. Right. And even his, his claim that these NDAs protect these women in these cases, that they wanted the NDAs, that it's about protecting them, is specious at best. Everybody knew that was a lie. This is about covering his butt and making it appear that he is not the horrible human being he is. And the fact that he talks about three of 40 allegations, which is a 13th of the allegations out there, and he'll, he'll release these three, makes me wonder, well, why not the other 20... Uh, or 37 of these. Like, this is doing nothing, and you don't get any special cookies or kudos for doing the right thing. Got it. I, but I do want to make one... All right, one... folks, Scott, uh, real, uh, real quick, real quick. I just want to make one last point, because you brought, brought up Russia, and, and, and it's playing in this game. As much as I hope and pray that Michael Bloomberg is not our nominee, the one thing I do feel confident is that Michael Bloomberg is not beholden to Russia. And, and there are reasons, and he actually has a fairly decent track record when it comes to gun control. He has funded a lot of really good projects out there on, on, in that space, and he actually believes in climate change and climate science. So, if it does, God help us, come down to those two, I think it's absolutely clear we all stand with Michael Bloomberg, even if we don't want to, because lots of times in our history we've had to do things we don't want to do. But... We actually have so much better choices, and I hope to see the greater populace start to galvanize Elizabeth, around Elizabeth Warren, because if she had a Y chromosome, we wouldn't even be talking about all of this, given her okay, talent and her deal, experience. Though, I keep, okay, but, but I keep trying to tell everybody, only two damn states have voted, and first of all, only one really didn't vote. So, I mean, I, right. that's why I keep saying March 4th. March 4th is when everybody can, we can actually make a right. real determination of what's going on. By March 4th, 19 states will have voted. Now you can actually say, okay, there are 31 left. Now, how do we move forward? The problem is all these people running around because two lily white states voted and really only 170,000 voted uh, in Iowa. Hell, is more black people uh, who live on the south side of Chicago than the whole damn state of Iowa. So that's what I keep saying. All these people who are like, okay, it could be this person. Look, you can't get to November unless you get to the convention. Mm -hmm. And you don't get to the convention as a nominee in February. Amen. You simply don't. You gotta go to a break, we come back, we're gonna talk about uh, black female prosecutors under attack, including Kim Fox, who's running for re-election in Chicago. Next, the Roland Martin Unfiltered broadcasting live from Los Angeles site of the 51st annual NAACP Image Awards.
To me, there are no greater patriots in America's long history than the black citizens who are willing to die for a nation that was denying them their rights. Mike Bloomberg is the only Democratic presidential candidate that has a real plan to fight for those sacrifices that have been taken for granted for far too long. And I've got to think it was in hopes that their service and sacrifice might redeem those rights for their children and grandchildren. Introducing the Greenwood Initiative, a bold new plan to help black Americans create generational wealth. One, we will help a million more black families buy a house. Two, we will double the number of black owned businesses. Three, we will help black families triple their wealth over the next 10 years to an all time high. Mike will get it done. Visit MikeForBlackAmerica.com to learn more. They are concrete proposals that we can afford and that we can get done, and we will. I'm Mike Bloomberg, and I approve this message. Paid for by Mike Bloomberg 2020. Check out Roland Martin Unfiltered. YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roland Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roland Martin Unfiltered. Like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live, you'll know it. Let's join Reverend Dr. Jackie Hood Martin as she engages others to think like a leader. Are you looking to enhance your leadership or that of your team in 2020? Well, you can join her online course and mastermind group, How Successful People Think. She'll be your guide as you learn timeless leadership principles to apply to daily living. The offer expires on February 28th to register uh, or start the online course. Go to www.livetolead.com forward slash Leesburg, livetolead.com forward slash Leesburg. Again, it is the uh, it's an online leadership course uh, that you want, and it's called How Successful People Think. And so the deadline is February 28th, and so livetolead.com forward slash Leesburg. All right, folks, a group of criminal justice organizations revealed a report this week that praised Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox administration for its policies that have resulted in far fewer black and Latino folks being sent to prison. On average, 1,063 black and Latino folks were sent to prison every month in 2012 after prosecutions by the Anita Alvarez administration. In 2019, the average was down to 706, according to the report. Now, Fox, of course, is facing re-election. Many folks have been critical of her because of the Justice Millette investigation. He is now being indicted, essentially charged by the independent prosecutor. Joining us right now is Jamila Hodge. She is director of Reshaping Prosecution Program, the Vera Institute of Justice. Uh, Jamila, uh, what do you make of, first of all, not just what's happening with Kim Fox, but you look at the attacks on on her, uh, on Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore. You look at what's happening, of course, with uh, uh, Aramis Ayala in, in Florida. So that at the end of the day, uh, you have a significant number uh, of black female prosecutors who are being targeted. Thank you, Roland, um, and it's great to be here. It's, um, you are right. So we knew when prosecutors ran on reform platforms, when you run on platforms of decarceration, of addressing racial disparities, of being transparent and accountable, that that is a very different prosecutor that we're, than what we're used to in this country. So it was expected that there would be attacks, attacks on policies, um, attacks from law enforcement, police unions. But I don't think what we expected, although maybe we should have, would have been the level of attack that particularly the black women lead prosecutors who won on these platforms have faced. The, their attacks go beyond policies. They are personal. 
they are very racialized and gendered in ways that their counterparts who ran on similar platforms in, who are enacting similar policies are facing. And it is just evidence of how deep these issues are in, in this country, how the criminal legal system has been a proponent of the racial injustice that we face in this country. And when you have someone, particularly a black woman, at the helm who's trying to do something about it, the folks who want to maintain the status quo do everything they can to take them out. And when you look at what's happening here, first of all, you have this, the judge who appointed the special prosecutor in the case of justice for Lynette. That's the one case where they're really targeting uh, Kim Fox in uh, Cook County. And can we just think about the fact that right now in this country, we have at the highest level of our government interference on the behalf of criminal cases against powerful white men. That is happening right now. And where's the outrage? We have had a system that for many years has allowed those with power, those with money, and those with privilege to avoid the consequences that black and brown people face all the time for criminal offenses. And what Kim has done is she put policies in place that, first of all, what we were talking about was low level. This was a fourth degree felony. This was not a case where someone had been hurt, had been shot, had been stabbed. She has policies across the board, as all of these reform-minded prosecutors do, that target, remove the, the clogging of the system using low-level offenses, being overly punitive, not focusing at all on the drivers of crime, and instead actually working on problem-solving. So here we have a fourth-degree felony where no one was hurt, where the response was do some community service, pay a fine, and let's move on so we can actually use our resources to attack violent crime and homicide cases in cases that are more important. And what we know is that Kim has had opposition way before Jesse Smollett. They were waiting for a misstep. They were waiting for a stumble. And she would be the first to admit, in fact, she did this when she released her campaign video. She acknowledged and owned. She could have handled that case better. And by that, what I think the takeaway is, is how we communicate about why changes are being made. It wasn't so much that there was a change. I don't think people disagree that we over-incarcerate in this country. We know we only have 5% right. of the world's population and nearly 25% of the incarcerated population. We know that it disproportionately impacts black and brown communities. We know that incarceration has not made us any safer. And so we need a new approach. But it's how you communicate right. about what you're doing. And so she acknowledged. She didn't have communicate you, about this. Have you... Right. What's the first, first of all, I'm going beyond the Kim Fox case. Yes. And uh, are you uh, disappointed that uh, you have not seen civil rights organizations and others come to a more vigorous defense of these black female prosecutors? Uh, you look at the fact that in Maryland, uh, that the governor, Larry Hogan, yes. has ordered the attorney general to take over the prosecution of a number of Maryland Mosby cases without even asking her. Uh, there's no indication that she somehow was afraid to prosecute. And so when you talk about that, not only that was happening with African-American prosecutors, but you look at the war that Larry Krasner is in with the Attorney General of Pennsylvania as well. No. Uh, and so it's interesting that, and I haven't seen it, I haven't seen a mass mobilization no. of these black civil rights organizations standing up for these sisters. 
No, Roland, thank you so much for raising this because, um, so at Vera, we launched an initiative called Black Women Lead literally in response to the lack of response and lack of support for black women lead prosecutors who are on the front lines. These women are not just, again, facing policy opposition, they're facing death threats against them and their children. They are being sued personally. They are having criminal cases investigations brought against them, the attacks on them are real and they are personal and no one was stepping up. And it literally, this the way it came about was we were all in Montgomery, Alabama at the amazing EJI Museum and Memorial where we were steeped in our country's history, of uh, the legacy of slavery. We went through the museum, the memorial, and we were there to talk about how prosecutors have to reckon with our history, this history of racial injustice in their role as a reform-minded prosecutor. We could not begin that discussion because the first thing Kim Fox said who was part of this convening was, I'm sorry, excuse me, but that's not history for me. That was April 4th when I had white nationalists marching on my office. And so we had to have that conversation about, oh, oh this isn't history, this, this is happening right now. The, the same language, you know, the same racial invectives are being hurled at these women right now in 2020. And so, and not just hearing that it was happening, but I think the thing that made me saddest was hearing that they felt alone. No one was showing up for them. And we have, I, our organization is not the only organization out there that supports refund-minded prosecutors. There are a few of us that have literally been created in the last few years um, with programs focused specifically on providing that support. And some of us didn't know. Some of us assumed that other organizations were providing that support. And I personally had to apologize for failing to step up and, and I, made a commitment right then that I would do everything I could from here on out to make sure that somebody was rallying around them. And so we do lead a coalition. We have a few, and it's a small coalition, a few amazing organizations like the ACLU and the Justice Collaborative who have come together and we are trying to help with crisis communications response. We're actually trying to now focus on how we shift the message to lifting up the amazing work they're doing instead of just responding to attacks. And But no, there hasn't been a huge outcry. And you would think when a public it. official receives a noose sent to her, that there would be a public outcry. But it has not happened. Right. All right. Jamila Hodge, uh, first of all, I certainly appreciate that. Real quick, I want to go to each one of my panelists uh, for a question, Dr. Carter. Uh, that's an important point, again, mm -hmm. the fact that you don't have other black organizations who are seeing what is happening. Look, I've had Kim Gartner on this show, Kim Fox on this show, Marilyn Mosby on this show, uh, Aramis Ayala. We've reached out to these sisters. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the sister in Prince George's County. you got the other uh, the sister uh, who's in Virginia as well. Her name is escaping me right now. But the bottom line is I just I'm trying to understand uh, like what in the hell is going on? We talk about the importance of having uh, progressive voices as DAs, but we got to have their back when they're under attack, not only locally, but when you have Donald Trump and William Barr yes. saying that these progressive DAs are a problem as well. Now, Dakota, that's an issue for black folks. 
Absolutely, but I think oftentimes we treat blackness as equated with maleness, and there's a way in which we don't necessarily think about protecting black women or don't think about the way that black women in this space are treated differently and the racist threats that they get look different. You get threatened with rape. You get threatened with beatings and all kinds of things. And I think it's also interesting because when we think about, say, what happened with Breonna Harmon in Texas, I, I don't know if everybody remembers, this was the white young lady who said that black men had gang raped her and she lied and she got deferred prosecution and all of those things. The community was upset because, indeed, um, she was endangering the lives of these black men that, that I'm sure they would have looked for as her rapist. But, again, where is that same kind of mind to to encircle with protection and support and an open statement that actually these kinds of things won't be tolerated. So the people on the other side, not just as victims, but the people who are working to sustain our communities and make sure our communities have a healthier relationship to the criminal justice system are in fact being protected because it was all good when Marilyn Mosby was going after these police officers in the Freddie Gay Freddie Gray case, but where are they now that she is, in fact, facing all of these attacks on her professionalism, all these attacks on her competence, right? People yes. going after her legal license and, and other, these other women in these places who are facing Got it. much of this, this, this vitriol. You know, Lauren, we saw black female prosecutors go to St. Louis to stand with Kim Gardner. Uh, and again, I, I want to see where's the image of the NAACP, the National Urban League, Reverend Sharpton, National Action Network, uh, a, a host of a Southern Christian Leadership Conference, uh, and Dr. Steele. I can go on and on and on. Where, where is the joint news conference uh, of those organizational leaders saying they stand with Kim Gardner and the attacks on her and trying to basically steal her power? Yeah. Well, other than Color of Change, so many of these, uh, uh, you know, civil rights groups are sort of owned by some sort of corporate uh, control in terms of where they get their funding. I'm not suggesting that's what's going on in this case, but a lot of times that does curtail what they choose to fight. The other thing is, if you look at the history of, of all of these organizations, uh, it's pretty obvious. I mean, they've always been male-run and male-centric. And, you know, I always joke with my friends, when you pull back the curtain, and this is present day, so imagine what was going on 30 or 40 years ago. When you pull back the curtain and see who's actually doing the work and the running around in the back, it's all a bunch of women doing the work. And I, I just think that they are not thinking about this, which is really strange because, of course, the criminal justice system in America is rooted to what has happened to black people historically from day one. So this should be obviously a frontline issue for any civil rights organization. And uh, I think at some point they will wake up. It's certainly the type of thing that you would think that uh, Al Sharpton particularly would go after, mm -hmm. uh, but also the NAACP as well. Um, I remember when Stephanie Morales but down but in, uh, in, in Portsmouth uh, right. prosecuted a cop when she first came in, and it was this big deal. And you can see the media. You know, it's not just, of course, the tentacles of the civil rights organizations, the media as well. The media always played it as, as oh, my God, right. it's so shocking that a cop is being prosecuted. But, of course, the, the real story there was you have a black female prosecutor right. prosecuting a white male cop. And that's kind of just in everyone's face, Got even it. though no one's saying it. But anyway, I think that... I think the civil rights uh, leaders, the, the, the old-school civil rights groups will actually come to the call for this right. at some point. But, here, but, but Pam, I don't understand what the, how hard this is. First of all, I'm a black man, <laughs> and this ain't hard for me. No. I mean, I mean, bottom line is, when, what happened with Aaron Masayala, uh, when it went, when, you know, look, I was standing right there with Marilyn Mosby, standing right there with Kim Gardner, with Kim Fox, because the issue is not whether these are black women or if they're black men. 
this is what's right. And the bottom line is there are people who want to take them out because they are actually on the, they are on the ground fighting mass incarceration because it's the district attorneys who are the ones imprisoning people. And there are more people who are in the state prisons than people who are on the federal level. Pam, go ahead. I am going to say something controversial here, which is that part of the misogyny... Well, you ain't gotta, you ain't gotta qualify it. Just say it. <laughs> part of the Just mis- say it. The misogyny in our own community is permeated with this notion that black women are so tough they can handle their own thing, they're so aggressive, they don't need to be rescued. Black women are out there rescuing everybody else, but nobody ever thinks that they need to rescue their sisters. And quite frankly, we see that, we see there's an underpinning of resentment built in all of that. That sense that this world creates more opportunities for black women than black men, and so when they get their opportunities, they're kind of on their own. There's a standoffishness between brothers and sisters when sisters get in power. And I I just want to call that out. I want people to, to think on that and pray on that a little bit because that, that's going on deep in our community. The other thing I want to do is call out not just the NAACP, but the LDF, the Legal Defense Fund of the NAACP is a well-funded organization with top lawyers who are supposed to be doing right. the law side of civil rights. Where right. are y'all? You know, the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, something you were at just, what, last week, the week before? They're talking about an emergency meeting. There is no bigger emergency than the attack on our female prosecutors. What the Sam Hill is a CBC Foundation doing right now? It's got money, and it's got very high-profile, um, uh, you know, leaders and people with enormous uh, followings and platforms that could make this and elevate this to a national issue. That's what people don't want to see happen because when black people get mad about something on a national level, things change. Everybody knows that because we're everywhere and you can't hide from us. So when we get together on something, the man, do we move the needle? We've seen it over and over again. We know it to be true, but we need our leaders to lead. It's different from being a Democratic leader than being a leader of Democrats, right? There's, we have leaders who are there to be in their caucus, but not there it. to be in their community, and I that's what's missing. And, and if I can jump in, I All do... All right, folks, just... Jamila, final comments. I got to go to a break. Okay, I just want to first clarification that Sherilyn Eiffel uh, of the LDF, because she's a black woman, is at the table. So I want to just name that. Um, and I also think part of the problem is what the, the hard work and the impact these women are having is not being uplifted. Even who the media that promotes reform puts out tends to favor the Larry Krasners over the Stephanie Morales in the Kim Fox. So part of it is we need to do a better job of putting out how they're helping our, our communities, our people, so that people can understand if we don't have them, this is really harmful for us. They are working for us. Got it. All right, then. Uh, first of all, Jamila, we still appreciate it. Thanks a lot. When we come back, folks, uh, a Black History Moment with Congressman Jim Clyburn on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Back in a moment. Mike Bloomberg is the only Democratic presidential candidate that has a real plan for Black youth and education. It's called the Greenwood Initiative. We'll make public college tuition free for all low-income students. We'll forgive college loans for students who were exploited by failed for-profit colleges. Mike knows investing in our teachers is investing in our children. We'll also recruit more black and Latino teachers as we did in New York City, because studies show they can make all the difference. And we'll also invest much more in heavily historically black colleges and universities, because many of the HBCUs are struggling. 
and the first step to achieving generational wealth is taken in the classroom. We'll incentivize state and localities to create financial literacy classes. Mike will get it done. Visit MikeForBlackAmerica.com to learn more. They are concrete proposals that we can afford and that we can get done, and we will. I'm Mike Bloomberg, and I approve this message. Paid for by Mike Bloomberg 2020. me about terms some of the pocket squares that I wear. Now, I don't know. Robert don't have one on. Now, I don't particularly like the white pocket squares. I don't like even the silk ones. And so I was reading GQ magazine a number of years ago, and I saw uh, this guy who had this, this pocket square here, and it looks like a flower. Uh, this is called a shibori pocket square. This is how the Japanese manipulate the fabric to create this sort of flower effect. So I'm going to take it out and then place it in my hand so you see what it looks like. And I said, man, this is pretty cool. And so I tracked down, the. it took me a year to find a company that did it. Uh, and so uh, they basically about 47 different colors. And so I love them because, again, as men, we don't have many accessories to wear. So we don't have many options. Uh, and so this is really a pretty cool uh, pocket square. And what I love about this here is you saw uh, when it's uh, in, in the pocket, you know, it gives you that flower effect like that. But if I wanted to also, unlike other, because if I flip it and turn it over, it actually gives me a different type of texture and so therefore it gives me a different look so there you go so uh, if you actually want to uh get one of these shibori pocket squares we have them in 47 different colors all you got to do is go to rollingthismartin.com forward slash pocket squares so it's rollingthismartin.com forward slash pocket squares all you got to do is go to my website uh and you can actually uh, get this now for those of you who are members of our bring the funk fan club there's a discount for you to get our pocket squares. That's why you also got to be a part of our Bring the Funk fan club. Uh, and so that's what we want you to do. And so it's pretty cool. So if you want to jazz your look up, you can do that. In addition, uh, y'all see me with some of the feather pocket squares. My sister who's a designer. She actually makes these. They're all custom made. So when you also go to the website, you can also order one of the customized uh, feather pocket squares uh, right there at rollingsmartin.com forward slash pocket squares. So please do so. And of course, uh, at goes to support the show and again if you're a bring the funk fan club member you get a discount this is why you should join the fan club As we pause to celebrate Black History Month in 2020, there's one person I think that we ought to give particular attention to, Robert Smalls. Robert Smalls was born in Beaufort, South Carolina. At the age of 12, uh, was farmed out uh, to the Charleston Waterfront uh, by John McGee, who uh, was his master. Uh, he had been born a slave. But when Robert Smalls got to the waterfront in Charleston, he did much more than carry out whatever responsibilities were given to him uh, as a hired hand because he was hired off by John McGee. He was to be uh, a... Um, a worker uh, on the ship, the planter, and his income 
was being sent back to his master in Beaufort. But John's, uh, but Robert Smalls really started planning his future. And I want to say that again. He started planning his future. A future based on a scripture that I learned to listen to my dad's sermons uh, from the 11th chapter in the first verse of Hebrew. Faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. He had faith in his future and he started preparing for it. He listened as a captain of the ship would navigate the waters around Charleston. He learned what those whistles meant. He watched the currents and he watched as the ship's captain maneuvered uh, through those currents. He learned what all of that meant. And he also observed uh, what the ship's captain and others did uh, with their habits. He learned that every Friday night they would desert the ship, leaving only him and the other worker bees there. And they would go into the town of Charleston and frolic around on Friday nights. And one Friday night, when they left the ship, Robert Smalls, having learned the whistles, learned the current, he absconded the ship, the planter. And he navigated through those waters. He knew how to pull the whistle and what sounds to make. Stopped off in North Charleston, picked up his family and some friends, and they safely delivered the planter to the Union soldiers. Having escaped slavery, Robert Smalls was rewarded with $1,500 in cash and his freedom. He turned that cash into great wealth, and he turned his freedom into hard work on behalf of those who still were not free. He did that around March in 1862. Uh, later that year, August of 1862, his Presbyterian minister uh, from uh, Beaufort brought Robert Smalls with him to Washington, D.C., where Robert Smalls sat down with Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. And Frederick Douglass and Robert Smalls argued for blacks uh, to be allowed to fight for their own freedoms. Abraham Lincoln authorized Robert Smalls to come back to South Carolina and recruit 40,000 blacks into the Union Army, which he did. And those 40,000 made the difference in the manpower needed for the Union to successfully keep this country together. And for that, we ought to honor Robert Smalls, not just this month, but every day of the year. Because Robert Smalls became a member of the South Carolina legislature and served there for 10 years. 
became a member of the United States Congress and served here for 10 years. And here in the Lincoln Room where I sit, there's a portrait of Robert Smalls and Frederick Douglass on either side of Abraham Lincoln honoring what they did to make black history so meaningful. One last thing I want to say about Robert Smalls, he didn't hold a lot of animus. When Robert Smalls returned to Beaufort, he purchased a house that he had been a slave in. And when his master died, leaving his wife sick, in need of help, Robert Smalls took her into the house that she once owned, and he now owned, and nursed her until her death. Not animus, but a great contributor to history. And I am proud to now represent many of the counties and communities that were represented in the United States Congress by Robert Smalls. All right, I want to thank Congressman Jim Clyburn for that great video he posted on social media, and we certainly appreciate that. Folks, I'm broadcasting live from the NAACP Image Awards, 51st Annual NAACP Image Awards here uh, in Los Angeles, yet we're still, of course, covering news around the country. We have been covering all the drama at Texas Southern University regarding the Board of Regents uh, putting the president, Dr. Austin Lane, on administrative leave, uh, claimed uh, for some reason in terms of something dealing with admissions and uh, things not being done properly. This week, though, just yesterday, they agreed to a buyout, $900,000 by the TSU Board of Regents. But what's crazy is the Board of Regents admitted that there was no wrongdoing on the part of Dr. Austin Lane. So why in the hell did they run off clearly a very successful president? Joining us right now is Ron Price, one of those border regents. Uh, he is, uh, first of all, him, uh, as well as a Regent Mitchell. Uh, they really were the only two, uh, the smartest ones on this board, uh, who was not going along with this nonsense. And, and, and Ron, I, I got to ask you, what the hell? If no wrongdoing was found, why, why are taxpayers paying a $900,000 buyout for a president who was extremely effective? Was this a personality class? Was it ego? Why is TSU looking for a new president? Well, I think that's the million-dollar question. It's a question I've been asking, although I've only been on the board for nine months. Uh, quite frankly, I thought, you know, we'll have opportunity to work collectively to, with Dr. Lane to make Texas Southern one of the finest universities in the United States. It happens to be an HBCU, and all of this uh, stuff happened in the last two and a half months, came out of nowhere. And I think, uh, quite frankly, I think you hit the best with more personality issues going back two, two and a half years ago prior to me and the four new regents uh, arriving on the board. And I don't know. I was with you in October, or actually uh, September. We were praising the U university held the Democratic debate, the only HBCU to host one. Everything went well. Then less than 30 days later, there was this movement for, from some of my colleagues to remove the president, which is the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. And unfortunately, um, although I argued back then and I argued, uh, I argued in September, I argued in November, I argued in December, why are we doing this? Let's not embarrass black institutions. 
we just held a presidential debate. It, it went off without a hitch. People said we couldn't host it in the neighborhood and in a hood without violence. There was zero violence. The Houston community supported it. Everybody was on the same page. And all of a sudden, less than a month and a half, we're getting rid of the president. It just don't make no sense to me. This is, it, first of all, it is stunning to me. Uh, he's been president four years there. He put out a statement to the TSU faculty, staff, students, alumni. Uh, and this is what he said, brought homecoming traditions, parade in 2016, the football game of 2019, back on campus. Uh, also, construction of a new 100,000-square-foot library learning center, a creation of a capital expenditure plan, safety enhancement at the university, revival of Greek life, clearance of NCAA probation for the TSU athletic program, along with record-breaking academic success and graduation rates for TSU student athletes accepted mm -hmm. the largest single gift from an individual donor around $3 million for the College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences established the Maroon and Gray Affair annual fundraiser resulting in more than $3 million raised, increased enrollment over targeted projections including double-digit percentage growth in 2017, further growth in 2018, increase in persistence and graduation rates following the enhancement of the freshman seminar course and project graduation over a three-year period, TSU's investment rating from Moody's uh, improved from negative to stable to positive, resulting in more favorable borrowing scenarios for TSU. As you said, hosted the debate of uh, the Democratic debate that took place there uh, in March. Uh, I mean, I can I can go on and on and on. Any other HBCU with a brain or any other college, with the president who's done these sorts of things, you would not have a board of regents running the presidents off. And what I don't understand is why the cowards who you serve with, and I will call them cowards, Ron, refuse to come out and talk to the public and explain exactly what their problem is with Dr. Austin Lane. Well, you know, Ron, I can only speak for myself because somewhat I'm in a catch-22. I am bounded by the agreement uh, which was signed last night and voted on, uh, the agreement that Dr. Lane uh, requested. And, you know, quite frankly, I don't blame him at all. I wouldn't want to be around some of my colleagues if I was him in the situation that they put him in. Um, I can say Dr. Lane and I and the provost and some other people, we had a lot of big things we've been working on for the university that was going to take place this year. And for some reason, things in Haywire, and unfortunately I'm kind of bounded by that agreement that we signed that, I, I can't say too much, but I, I can just put it this way. I support Dr. Lane. Uh, we had some magical things that we had planned on doing collectively. He came to Dallas several times to visit with me. We were working on a lot of projects that could enhance Texas Southern and, quite frankly, enhance HBCUs in the United States. So I'm, I'm disappointed that during Black History Month, uh majority of my colleagues felt it was the best time in, of the month to to get rid of Dr. Lane. It just don't make sense to me. The whole thing just don't make sense to me. Uh, as you indicated earlier, well, 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 Regent Mitchell well, 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 and I, we're on the opposite well, well, side of this discussion with our colleagues. Uh, quite frankly, I still think it's a bad decision, but I have to respect the, uh, the, uh, the decision of the board because I am a board of regent. But I wish Dr. Lane tremendous success, and I'm here to help him, whatever he want to do in the future. All right, Ron Price, man. Always a pleasure talking with you. Thanks a lot. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, let me go ahead and say a few words here, folks. Uh, I am a, I'm a native of Houston, Texas. I graduated from Jack Cades High School, Magnet School of Communications, which is literally right across the street from TSU. 
Uh, I have uh, known, I've covered uh, TSU over the years uh, when I was, of course, managing editor of the Houston Defender. Uh, it's been lots of drama there. The university has had previous presidents, uh, one who actually went on trial uh, for misuse of funds. Uh, here was a man who came from a PWI, uh, who came to work for an HBCU. Clean record, completely clean record. Him and his wife, uh, Lauren, were advocates of the university, were fighting on behalf of the university. And I dare say this, and I, I will say this because I have spoken uh, at 15, out of the 19 commencements I've given, 15 have been HBCUs. Uh, and I, I did the commencement speech at Texas Southern University uh, two years ago. I've spoken at more than 50 plus HBCUs. And let me say this right now, and let me be real clear, this is not an indictment of all HBCUs, but I dare say, because I have seen this from more than a dozen HBCUs, I am sick and tired of egotistical, arrogant, and clueless and callous board of trustees who put their egos ahead of the best interests of universities. We have seen this take place. We have seen this take place all across the country. And I can tell you folks, listen to me clearly, and I didn't go to the HBCU, but I can tell you this, I have had brothers and sisters who tell me that they are sick and tired of even going after these jobs. I've had individuals who say, I'm not gonna go work for another HBCU because I'm sick of this kind of mess. I've heard that. I'm talking about people who have served in these capacities. There are African-Americans who are committed to the education of black children, of black youth all across this country. There are African-Americans who want to see HBCUs succeed. But when this kind of crap happens at Texas Southern University, and it happened at other places as well, folks, it's a problem. We have seen drama at Florida A&M, at HBCUs in Alabama, at HBCUs in other, other uh, places in Florida. We've seen it happen all across the country. And look, it's not as if presidents don't get replaced at majority white institutions. But when you have a board of trustees move against a president like they did in this case at TSU and have given no real reason and then try to have an investigation to find a reason, and then when you vote to terminate him, and then let me also say this here, because when they had that vote to terminate him, Ron Price couldn't attend that board meeting. They would not let him participate by phone. And I dare say to the TSU board chair, to the secretary, the board vice chair, and all the rest of them, you are cowards. You are cowards who have shamed the university. You have cost the university $900,000 in a settlement. Why in the hell would you pay somebody $900,000 to leave who has been successful at raising money for the university? This is what happens when people say, I don't feel like giving because you're going to waste my money. You have seen a university revive its fortunes because of Dr. Austin Lane. And look, let me be clear. 
I didn't know Dr. Austin Lane before he became president. He's a Kappa. I'm an Alpha. I had never met him before, but I can tell you this here. As somebody who has met with, who has interviewed, who has covered numerous university presidents and numerous HBCU presidents, he was doing an amazing job at TSU, and I have nothing but disdain for every single one of those TSU Board of Regents who voted to terminate him and then chose to, when he chose to mediate, agreed to a buyout, and they said there was no wrongdoing on his part. This absolutely makes no sense. It's a stain on TSU. Their faculty should be angry. The staff should be angry. The students and the alumni should be angry. And they should be protesting and calling for the removal of every single one of these trifling TSU Board of Regents who chose to take this action. I feel strongly about this because TSU is sitting there in the heart of Third Ward. It's a stone's throw away from the University of Houston. Rice University is in Houston as well. University of St. Thomas. You're talking about almost, you know, 90 minutes away from Texas A&M University. Prairie View is 50 miles down the road. And you got the University of Texas. We have the opportunity to create lasting and strong and stable black colleges, but it cannot happen as long as you have egotistical and arrogant board of trustees who are responsible for being over the president. Folks, what happened in Houston is shameful and shame on every single one of these regents who voted to oust Dr. Austin Lane. And whatever university hires him next, and trust me, he's getting phone calls, they're going to be getting a strong, consistent president and unfortunately, it's likely not going to be an HBCU because of the fools at TSU and the actions that they took. When we come back on Roller Martin Unfiltered, we'll talk what's happening in New York City in the Harvey Weinstein case. You're watching Roller Martin Unfiltered from Los Angeles back in a moment. Mike Bloomberg is the only Democratic presidential candidate who understands that wealth creation and the current racial wealth gap is linked to past racism and has a plan to address the impact on black America. The crimes against black Americans still echo across the centuries, and no single law can wipe out that slate clean. The time has come, I think, to fully commit ourselves to acknowledging our history and righting our country's wrongs. And that's exactly what I will do as president. It's called the Greenwood Initiative. One, we will help a million more black families buy a house. Two, we will double the number of black-owned businesses. Three, we will help black families triple their wealth over the next 10 years to an all-time high. Mike will get it done. Visit MikeForBlackAmerica.com to learn more. There are concrete proposals that we can afford and that we can get done, and we will. I'm Mike Bloomberg, and I approve this message. Paid for by Mike Bloomberg 2020. Be sure to join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar that you give to us supports our daily digital show. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real as Roland Martin Unfiltered. Support the Roland Martin Unfiltered daily digital show by going to RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing 50 bucks each for the whole year. You can make this possible. RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. Changing the mind is very difficult on how way people act and how they grow up. But if you get somebody that makes it inspiring and you can motivate them and you can educate them, 
that's where you change the dynamics for the future of our children. I'm George Morales. I'm the constable of Precinct 4 here in Travis County. I'm raised in Southeast Austin, other community called Dove Springs. In the um, late 80s, early 90s, it was, uh, it was really hard in our community in Dove Springs. We had a lot of uh, gangs uh, and drugs that were being sold in our communities. You know, I came up in law enforcement seeing a lot of constables put themselves in the forefront. It's a community-based office. You know, you want to be out there amongst your community and show them the better side of law enforcement. Show them that, you know, hard work does pay off. I mean, that's constable work to me. As the president of the Springs Advisory Board, um, our goal is helping the rec center grow, implement programs. We do events from Easter, which we have about 2,000 kids. The back to school bash, we did about 3,500 backpacks. I think a lot of kids may see him as a hero. Uh, because he gives back to the kids. It's like he's always talking to kids. He's always around youth. He knows that it's the next generation that's gonna take over. I don't do this by myself. I was taught by my union that if we work together, things happen. If we speak up, things happen. Union is strength in numbers. And I bring those numbers from the Dust Springs community, from the Precinct 4 community. And that's the union pride that I have. Our uh, folks, jurors in the Harvey Weinstein case are deadlocked on the most serious charges. Uh, they did announce that they have agreed on the lesser charges. I want to go to my panel right here. Uh, Pam, Keith, uh, the, ju the judges told them to continue deliberations. But my goodness, what does it say that on the two most serious charges, after that stunning and shocking and riveting testimony uh, of Harvey Weinstein allegedly raping these women viciously, that this jury is deadlocked? Uh, you got me, Roland. Um, you know, obviously, we're not in the courtroom. We don't know what uh, his defense counsel did. Obviously, he has the resources to hire extraordinarily talented defense counsel. There maybe have been evidence that was stricken or testimony that was stricken from the record that the jury wasn't allowed to consider for whatever technical evidentiary reasons. I don't really know. Um, you know, I do think that there may be, and I'm not, I'm speculating here, but I think there may be sort of a, a backlash and undercurrent against the Me Too movement. There's some men who are feeling some kind of way um, about, you know, the, the fact that, that women's voices are being heard uh, in a way that is uh, unprecedented in, in, in today's day, and it still needs to get better, but it's way better than it was. And there are people that are feeling destabilized by that, especially older corporate men. And if you get a jury in, in New York City, you might get older corporate men. So I can't, I'm not, I'm not accusing any juror of any particular thing. I'm simply saying that that's a dynamic that could be playing out here. To, to what I have seen in the Twitter and the basic media, um, you know, this one is not a close call. So I, I don't understand. Um, and I hope that it doesn't end up in a mistrial. I, I you know, but at the end of the day, um, you know, how many people did he have to abuse before he got called on the carpet? And I think he's definitely been playing that sympathy card, trying to look like some old and firm guy. Well, that was not the, the Harvey Weinstein that was, was raping and sexually assaulting people. And yes, I am saying it as a fact, because I believe it to be true. I believe the women that came forward, I think the testimony was credible, and I have a right to have my own opinion about that. Um, but my opinion obviously matters a lot less than the jury. I hope that they do find him guilty. I hope that he does spend time uh, incarcerated for what he's done. God knows we have people sitting in jail for a whole lot less. Um, so I, I hope he does get sentenced to jail time. That's all I can say. Dr. Car 
Dr. Carter, the uh, quote from the jury, we the jury request to understand whether we can be hung on one and or three and unanimous on all the other charges. Uh, that note went out around 2.16 p.m. Eastern. Uh, and what the judge said was any verdict you return, whether guilty or not, must be unanimous. If you cannot reach a unanimous agreement on a particular count, you cannot return a verdict on that count, and a new trial will have to be scheduled before a different jury. Your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, I think this is, you know, partly probably what he was hoping for. And again, as Pam said, he's been coming in there on a walker and looking slack and, and not like this sort of man who would pounce on someone, right, the predator uh, that, that he is or that he was uh, alleged to have been. Um, you know, he's been playing that card. And I think this is a really high bar. To, to pass, and if they have to do this again, I don't know that his chances second time around of being convicted are any better than they are right now. I mean, I think they've called not just the, the, the parties to these attacks, but also their character witnesses and others who were testifying to when these people told me about this. And if that wasn't enough to convince the jury that this man uh, did these things, I'm not certain that another uh, jury would be any more convinced. And I think it's just not wanting Right to admit that this thing happened, that these these rapes happened, that these assaults happened, and that this man is the right. cause of it. Uh, Lauren Victoria Burke. First of all, we do know that that was a that was a of course hung jury in the first trial because Bill Cosby was convicted by right. the second trial. Mm -hmm. If this right. jury convicts him on the lesser charges, if they convict him on if they convict him on the lesser charges, if they convict him on lesser charges, they can still retry him on the most serious charges. Right. That can also happen. Yes. Right, and I, I think that, um, you know, it's a... Uh, Me Too is an interesting situation. Obviously, I think that even if you didn't know the details of this case, your assumption would be if you can't convict on this, you can't convict on anything. Um, I've actually been listening to a podcast by two Irish journalists, uh, uh, Phelan McAllier and Anne McElhaney, and they have actors reenacting the day's testimony. It's really good. It's actually rolling called... Uh, Harvey Weinstein trial unfiltered. <laughs> so it, it's a really good podcast. And uh, because I've had clients that have dealt with the Me Too issues, I've sort of studied a, a bunch of Me Too related issues. Frankly, I do think the Me Too movement is certainly well-intentioned and long overdue. Uh, it centers women in a way that women have never been centered in history. But I do think it's also dangerous to due process specifically for black men who are disproportionately uh, adversely impacted by the criminal justice system, particularly with regard to sex crimes. So, having said well, that, I think that uh, the testimony of Jessica Mann, uh, who is the main, uh, one of the main uh, accusers, uh, is where it gets problematic and I think why the jury might hang. She clearly was assaulted by Harvey Weinstein, but the problem is that she keeps up a consensual relationship with him later. And that, that I think, is going to cloud the jury's judgment a little bit, um, unfortunately. Uh, the actually, to me, the most important testimony was the actress Annabella Sciorra. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, she she was backed up by uh, Rosie Perez. I actually think without Rosie Perez, she was still incredibly credible. Uh, unfortunately, the statute of limitations passed on her case. But um, that case alone, even though the jury's told not, instructed not to pay attention because she's a Molyneux witness, it's still extremely important. And when they asked to read back Annabella's testimony, I thought, okay, he's going down on all counts. But I am a little bit shocked that they're hung on things like, you know, uh, criminal sexual assault. I mean, I, that, that should be a pretty easy one. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Uh, the judge obviously admonished them to be unanimous, and in that, I think they will find him guilty on the more serious case. Well, again, uh -huh. we'll certainly see what, 
We'll certainly wait. We'll certainly wait for the that judge. Excuse me, that jury's decision. All right, folks. Today is the 55th anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X. A lot of folks have been talking about that recently because of the Netflix documentary uh, that came from a Fusion TV who shot Malcolm X. Here's a look at that trailer. We're not brutalized because we're Muslims. We're brutalized because we are black people in America. The power of this man's courage to say this stuff. It changed the entire trajectory of my life. He was becoming a figure that transcended the nation of Islam. It was politics that really started the rift between Malcolm and the nation. No, the white man is the greatest hate teacher that ever lived The FBI was deathly afraid of someone like Malcolm X. What kind of democracy is that? People had to start wondering, if something happens to Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm becomes the leader, it's over for all of us. And uh, just then, the gunfire went off. Malcolm's death never sat right with me. The investigation was a failure. Asking who's guilty is a dangerous question to ask. What is the real story? It's in the history book. Leave it there. Leave it alone. Elijah Muhammad told everybody, do not raise a hand against Malcolm X. He didn't have to give the order. Someone would take care of The FBI should have known. Why doesn't someone want to get to the bottom of this? They never had any intentions of seriously investigating that assassination. That is my mission. I'm not going to stop until I get justice. Because the official count of who killed Malcolm X, it's not true. All right, folks. So this is always a difficult day for the... Uh, family of uh, Malcolm X, so certainly our thoughts and prayers go out to them. All right, folks, that is it for us. I certainly want to thank Dr. Carter. I want to thank Pam, Law and Victoria Burke, been on our panel today. I certainly appreciate it. Also, I uh, want to thank Avis for holding down for me yesterday as I was flying here to Los Angeles. Of course, we're here at the 51st Annual NAACP Image Awards. This is the pre-show dinner uh, taking place uh, at the Ray Doby Ballroom here uh, at Hollywood, uh, in Hollywood. Tomorrow night, the Image Awards will be airing on BET. Uh, of course, from Pasadena, hosted by Anthony Anderson. So uh, we're going to be, uh, so we're going to stop the show uh, after we finish. We're gonna, then we'll, we'll uh, restart it, come back live uh, here from the red carpet. Uh, and so looking forward to some interviews, uh, some chats with various folks uh, who are here. Um, hate that we're not nominated. First of all, some of the people hate that we're not nominated this year. Uh, but uh, again, I, I, think I, I think I counted, I think I've had 10 NAACP Image Award nominations won four times. Uh, and so uh, we're certainly glad to be here. And so, but we're going to keep doing what we do, and hopefully they'll nominate us next year. I've been actually telling them they need to create a digital category, okay? And then that way, just digital versus having us compete against TV shows. But we'll see what happens. Uh, and so that's it for us. Uh, also, folks, we want to thank everybody, of course, who are supporters of us. Roller Martin Unfiltered, our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar you give makes this possible. Your dollars actually make us, make it possible for us to travel here and be able to broadcast from here. We're going to be doing the red carpet here tonight, tomorrow night as well, and then on Sunday for the American Black Film Festival uh, honors at the Beverly Hilton. Then, of course, uh, I'll be back in D.C. on Monday, and then we broadcast it live from Charleston, South Carolina on Tuesday and Wednesday as well. So uh, it's a busy two weeks for us, but it's all good. Uh, please support us by going to rollermarkunfiltered.com. Uh, you can again, you can pay, you can you can pay uh, via Square, PayPal, or Cash, all of those. And so we certainly uh, appreciate uh, all of that. And so please go to rollermarkunfiltered.com. 
Uh, all right, folks, uh, that's, it. that's it. You know, as we do every Friday, we roll the credits of the people who supported us. I was about to do that right now. So, uh, again, uh, be sure to uh, check us out. I'll be back. It's uh, I'll be back on probably... I don't know, about 15 minutes uh, for us going live here from the NAACP Image Awards pre-show red carpet. Okay, I got to go. Holla! I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.